0: Today, on Building the Open Metaverse.
1: The most appealing virtual worlds may be places where we're sort of forced to get along rather than allowed to sort of imagine our own reality and, you know, everybody else's be damned.
0: Welcome to Building the Open Metaverse, where technology experts discuss how the community is building the open metaverse together. Hosted by Patrick Cozy from Cesium and Marc Petit from Epic Games.
2: Hello, my name is Marc Petit from Epic Games, and my co host is Patrick Cozy from Cesium. Patrick, how are you today?
0: Hey, Mark, I'm doing great. And uh, I have a fun story for you. So, you know, a lot of people ask me what type of listeners listen to this podcast. And we say, well, you know, the community has a lot of developers, creators, product managers, and technical leaders. Well, I knew that my brother actually listens to the podcast and he works on storing, uh, installing floors on ships. Well, it turns out um, I just learned that my sister is also an avid a uh, podcast listener, and she, um, she works uh, analyzing blood, like when you get your blood drawn. So, so we have quite a broad base of listeners. I can see.
2: My family is not nearly as gracious as yours, by the way. <laughs> I have to talk to them about it. Well, we got some great numbers. We're not going to brag here, but uh, one day we'll, we'll share those numbers. Uh, we're super happy with, uh, with uh, how the podcast is going. And today is a very, very spe- special episode because we're welcoming a true pioneer of the metaverse, um, he was the CTO at Real Networks. He founded Linden Labs, where he created Second Life uh, many, many years ago, and ran it for nearly 15 years. And recently, he founded High Fidelity, you know, a specialty company, but returned to Second Life as an advisor. So we're super happy to have Philip Ross there with us. Philip, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This is fun.
0: Absolutely. Welcome, Philip. So we usually like to start the podcast by asking our guests about their journey to the metaverse. I mean, for you, I mean, tell us what fascinated you as a young programmer, an entrepreneur, and take us through the creation of Second Life and tell us what you're up to these days.
1: Sure, sure. Um, Well, I guess, you know, when one talks about tech-related things, you you always want to kind of put yourself in perspective in terms of history. I, I was... Uh, you know, born at such a time that for me, the personal computer was pretty available. I got my first personal computer at a swap meet for 20 bucks, and it was a Timex Sinclair a ZX81 based computer. So I had pretty good access from an early age to programming and to using computers. But, you know, what I didn't have access to was an internet, you know, was a network. And so I think that kind of plays into the experience. But, you know, my As a kid, I was fascinated with building things and I was really interested in physics. So things like how lasers worked or, you know, astronomy or just, you know, kind of how the world worked. And I think that influenced some of my early uh, explorations into computers. Um, I was really interested in simulation because I was struck by this idea that, you know, there's got to be a way to, you know, create some building blocks. That have some kind of laws of physics to them, and then let them run inside the computer and watch what happens. So, I think, you know, like a lot of other people, that was a formative experience that was important. I remember my buddy had one of those uh, Mandelbrot set zooming viewer things on windows Uh, so this would have been like 1981 or something you know and we were we were zooming in on the mandelbrot set and we were going as far as we could until we ran out of resolution you know at some point because i guess we'd run out of floating point precision or something on the computer and then we did this calculation where i said hey wait a minute how many times do we zoom in before we the whole thing, you know, turned blue. And it was like 12 times or something. And so we did this math where we said, well, if we zoomed in 12 times as much as we could each time, how big was the original beautiful curly Q, you know, Mandelbrot picture. And we calculated and it was, it was the size of the surface of earth. And I remember being like, everything is in here. You know, like everything is inside the computers. And I, I also had this experience as a kid where I wanted to be an astronaut and build spaceships like every other uh, or, you know, so many kids do. And I, as I learned about physics, I started to get into this idea that actually traveling into space is going to be really hard. And, you know, going to find a planet with life on it is going to be really hard. You know, like it's going to take a lot of power and a lot of time to do that. And so I think that was another thing that I was intrigued by the idea that we might be able to simulate things inside computers that we wouldn't have the time to find, you know, in the real universe.
0: Very cool. Yeah, the massive scale and all the simulation yeah, very much resonates uh, with me. So, so one thing that's interesting is I believe your, your philosophies around the metaverse may have changed over time and, and the impact of the metaverse, what it could mean for society. Could you tell us, you know, some some of these ideas and how they've and they potentially have changed
1: yeah i mean some things have stayed the same and some things have changed i think one thing that i think that like you hear a lot of people say today re say say again today um about the metaverse i also had this belief when i started second life that infinite possibility and sort of infinite freedom and kind of freedom from constraints and freedom from scarcity and freedom from limitations of any kind was sort of at the core of the the uh thing that would make the metaverse compelling and i would say after you know 20 years now of second life and looking back on all this stuff and working on high fidelity and just working so much on this i would say that i'm struck by the thought that we don't want so much a world of infinite possibility. Rather, we want a world that we share with others in constructive uh, and sometimes conflict with them. You know, th- this idea that, like the real world, the most appealing virtual worlds may be places where we're sort of forced to get along, if you will, rather than allowed to sort of imagine our own reality and, you know, everybody else's be damned, you know, sort of perspective. So that's something that I've really been changed by. And I was, I, I got there by, of course, watching Second Life and what happened to people inside Second Life.
2: You know, you, you, in, in a previous, uh, uh, you know, internet. By the way, I, I listen to you. I need to call out our friends from into the metaverse, Jonathan and, and Matthew. They do a fantastic job. And I know you were on their podcast recently. Um, right, right. You know, it's a very, they take a very different point of view, but it's a, it's a very great, but it's a great podcast to listen to and, and a good bunch of people. And I think it's on that podcast that I heard you say that, you know, the metaverse is a version of the internet that is 3D, but that's it makes the internet a live experience when you can, you know, you can interact with other people, but that's going to require new rules, you know, and, and ways to enforce those rules. So how do you, how did you handle that on, on, on second life? And what's your point of view now?
1: Well first of all I think we were we were lucky we were fortunate to do some things right on Second Life that we didn't understand until later um, let me just say I mean I think like many <laughs> many great technology projects many projects in general you know have some people kind of claim prior knowledge about them where you know come on let's let's be serious you know you you can't really have that and I, and i think something like second life second life was so complicated in the moving parts that we were bringing together that who could possibly have estimated you know for example whether it would bring people together or bring them apart you know as we've seen say in the last 10 years with social media you know the, the bringing them apart kind of thing So I think there were things we were fortunate that we did right, and those things are really interesting to look at right now. So to your point, and I think what you were alluding to that I mentioned in an earlier podcast was that, yeah, the metaverse, I think what we all mean by it is a combination of two things that in in different proportions, right? One is going from 2D to 3D, which is admittedly an important um it's an important work that we need to do. A lot of stuff as humans we need to do in 3D because we understand it so much better, remember it so much better, et cetera. But this idea of making the internet a live experience, even if it was 2D, that's the more important social and you know societal and human issue is that you know we are social animals who seek to collaborate and communicate at every opportunity. And so we need environments in which we can do that well.
2: So what about rules and systems to enforce those rules? Because there is no jurisdiction in the metaverse. I mean, and can we rely on, on just people's yeah. goodwill? I think we've learned over the past 15 years that it may not be the right thing to do.
1: Well, we're in an interesting spot, right? Where we've got a whole bunch of negative examples in front of us, right? We've got all kinds of things that look like bad things to do, right? Um, one of them is just writing a rule book. I, you know, you think about, let's say going into a pool and you get that list of, you know, no bare feet, you know, no, no, you know, no walking with drinks, no, you know, no, no horseplay. That idea of managing a world by having a list of rules and then having some unfortunate person sit there, you know, as a moderator and apply the list of rules to all the people's behaviors, uh, that's just absolutely nuts, right? I mean, we've already gone beyond the capacities, even in much less communicative environments, you know, like, Facebook groups or something like that. We've, we've already gone beyond the ability to apply that kind of centralized control to those worlds. On the other hand, right, uh, removing all responsibility, control, uh, authority altogether and enabling people to just be as mean as they want to everyone all the time because, hey, it's the metaverse this I think is maybe what's captured by the extreme libertarian sort of fully decentralized mindset around it. That's not going to work either. Nobody wants to live in a, a, you know, a savage kingdom where, you know, death waits you at every corner. Right. I mean, that, yeah, and everybody's nominally mean. And if you get into a firefight with somebody over politics, you're, you're, you're both going to suffer immensely. That that's not right either. So I think that we've got a bunch of stuff that hasn't worked and we've got to land somewhere in the middle. I I think second life accidentally, again, I don't want to claim that I was so smart about this second life. We were trying to facilitate people building things together and engaging in trade. That was one of the things we were really trying to do. And so I think we happened into in our attempt to support that as a company, we happened into doing some things right. Um, those were things like pseudonymity, um, right. Uh, anonymity is is a recipe for disaster because people can harm each other without any consequences pseudonymity is that is the word that I think most people use for the case where you know your avatar is a sticky precious identity but it's not philip Rosedale it's not your true name it's not your facebook account and I think that the 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 way that pseudonymity gets built the way that you have sticky relationships with communities with places and with with individuals, uh, can be done in a way that enables us to be our best selves and enables us to take care of each other. And, and explicitly, I just to give you one, you know, very specific answer. Everything's got to be done with groups. This is my kind of philosophical cryptic answer to this we're talking about scanning people's eyeballs and stuff so we can know who they are in the metaverse that is not going to work that's not the right approach that's got all kinds of negative consequences of that too like surveillance and governments harming you and stuff the thing that's going to work is belonging to a bunch of overlapping communities some people call this polycentrism right now i think it's good that's a good word for it you know we all belong to a ton of different communities and when we walk into a public event we are often known to be members of those communities i'm a local i'm you know i'm i'm a member of this neighborhood in san francisco when i go to a town hall meeting right i'm an i'm an alumnus of real networks as you mentioned earlier you know these are things that tie me to the people around me and to the world i'm in and constrain my behavior I can't just be anybody, I can't just do anything I want to do because it's going to get back to me through the membership that I have in these communities or groups. So I actually think that the right kind of um, belonging to groups and then knowing that of the other people you encounter in a virtual world, I think there's actually a pretty obvious path to having really great moderation. Like, Like everybody's talking about this week, if you told me, how would you fix Twitter? I would actually say, hey, where are the groups in Twitter? And can we celebrate and um, explicitly identify who belongs to what group so that when there's a conflict, the groups can sanction their members rather than uh, some people that Elon just fired having to sanction the members?
2: Interesting, because it's kind of an implicit way to the groups to manage your reputation.
1: Yep, exactly. Because
2: that's in real life, you know, our reputation, it was... Because, you know, we, we care a lot about this.
1: So. There's a lot of stuff I don't like in the last few years where, and it's a very engineering thing to do, and I, I'm totally guilty of it myself, historically. This idea that there should be one currency for everyone worldwide, right? There should be one set of moderation rules. There should be one, uh, you know, there's one There's one best form of human governance, right? These things just aren't true. You know, there's, there's, there's never been any evidence that all, you know, 7 or 8 billion people on the planet uh can effectively use the same currency right that just doesn't make any sense you know we we see look at europe as a bunch of countries that uh, struggle to use a single currency right now and you can see the flaw in that
0: so phil wanted to switch gears a little bit um uh, first um congrats i believe you rejoined second life as a strategic advisor earlier this year I'm
1: definitely, I'm helping a little bit more than I historically, you know, of course, I've never been out of touch with Second Life, as you might imagine. Um, I've always been close to uh, folks there. But um, about two years ago, a friend of mine and another person who was also becoming a friend actually bought Second Life from myself and from its original investors. And then I have, right, I've become more involved uh, recently um, in terms of trying to provide what help I can. And it's just a fascinating time to be advising um second life i mean what a what a wild moment to have everything kind of come back around and have everybody re-examine the metaverse and avatars and virtual worlds and then kind of find their way in many cases back to second life and say well how
2: did it work there can we frame some number just for so you studied in
1: 1999
2: yes i don't know if so, people remember what graphics was in 1999 <laughs> and, uh, you know
1: i started second life because graphics as you know mark Because graphics started to happen in 1999, I just heard somebody—maybe it was Neil Stevenson—somebody the other day said it in a talk. Said you know, 1999 was the year of the GeForce 2, and that Mm -hmm. was that. You know, that was the first chip that could do 3D on its own. And um, I uh, I jumped out of Real Networks and started Second Life, started Linden Lab um, in 1999 because that happened. And then the other thing that happened in 1999 was broadband. It it became obvious that broadband was going to work. that Mm -hmm. that we were going to have high bandwidth internet access, you know, from an investor's perspective, you could be sure that you could bet on that in a few years.
2: And the peak of Second Life with a million, you know, I I guess MAUs by by today's acronyms, monthly active users. Yeah,
1: Yeah, so Second Life size today is about a million, um, is about a million monthly active users. And that's about the biggest that it ever got. So what was interesting was, you know, Second Life obviously, well, maybe not obviously, Second life took a long time to get started, you know, like all overnight successes, it was not an overnight success. It was uh, about $20 million of investment before we reached profitability, you know, that, that, that was spent and then it was from 1999 to 2003 to launch it and then, you know, there was a lot more work to do after launch and then we became famous in 2006. So it was really like six or seven years, you know, before we knew it was going to work. Um, But uh, yeah, the the interesting thing about Second Life was it it kind of skyrocketed into everybody's, you know, visual field um, in about 2006, got up to about a million people uh, actively using it. And then that number has stayed about the same. Um, It's grown a little bit um, uh, uh, through and beyond uh, COVID, but remarkably, and of course, this is super fascinating for all the other companies that are trying to work on this, it reached a peak population size. And in, in a way, nobody really knows. And there have been a lot of attempts to change that population size, make it bigger that haven't worked. And that's one of the things that I talk about a lot because we've got companies like Facebook saying what it w- they need to you know, backfill whatever, you know, $50 mil- billion a year in lost revenues by delivering the metaverse to people. And I got to tell you, I've been there and it's, uh, it's a really hard problem.
2: Yeah, but as a comparison point, I mean, Roblox is more than 200 million MAUs. So, That's social right. gaming is a very powerful, uh, you know, online endeavor.
1: It, there's so many interesting things to say about Roblox. First of all, great company, amazing amount of technology in there. Started a little bit after Second Life. I, I think, uh, I think David and, and his his friends um, started uh, Roblox. I think it was like 2006 or something. So a little a little bit after us. Um, Roblox in many ways is Second Life, but for kids, which is really interesting. Um, Second Life is definitely not for kids. There's a variety of reasons for that, not all of them explicit, you know, some of them are just the culture of it. But Second Life is basically Second Life dislikes kids and kids dislike Second Life from the very beginning. And so it was kind of a self selection, but the thing about roblox is if you offer young kids say between you know 8 and 14 years old the opportunity to basically instantly be 20 years old and drive around in a convertible volkswagen and chit chat with other uh, kids that are doing the same thing imagining that they're older 100 percent of people 100 of kids want to do that as we all know or those of us who are parents know the trick is that 100 100- percent of kids want to do it which is why roblox has 200 million mau
0: so, Philip, earlier you mentioned, you know, it's great to see virtual worlds and avatars kind of coming back back around. And, you know, given that, that 20 years experience, do you, do you have any lessons learned you want to share with the community listening to the podcast, whether it's, it's business lessons or other kind of social experiment lessons?
1: Well, let's start with hope. Um, you know, we're all kind of losing hope in some ways lately, right? You know, I mean, there's a lot of concern that technology, for example, is only leading us in negative directions with respect at least to human behavior. Um, I don't think that's true at all, and Second Life is great evidence of it. So um, I think there's very li- it would be very difficult to argue that the kind of things that make Second Life a friendly place, um, which it is. I can come back and you know defend that more. but um, o- online communication in general, as it becomes lower latency, as we're closer to feeling like we're actually talking to each other. Like we three do right now. Um, That, as we get closer to that, if we do things right, we can cause people to behave better and better and better to each other in exactly the same way that people behave well to each other when they end up in the same room together, you know, at, let's say, a a party or something. Um, So I think there's a lot of hope. To be held out that we can do that. And I think sometimes we look back at asynchronous messaging, we look at something like Reddit or Twitter or Facebook groups or whatever, or Instagram, and we say, these things are all bad. They're causing harm to people. And that absolutely doesn't have to be the case. I think, I think, you know, I'm I'm a broken record about this, but I think that the choice to make targeted advertising the business engine behind a bunch of these products, unfortunately, is uh inseparable from the harm that's being caused to human behavior and i think that if you if you take that if you take if you take that business requirement away if you don't have to run ads or if you sorry if you don't have to run targeted ads normal ads are fine um you suddenly have an opportunity to do something good with technology for people and there's every opportunity to do that so i mean i'm very enthusiastic about looking soberly at what we need to do to actually get there but anticipating that we can get 10 million people in a virtual room and have them behave well together.
2: So maybe that would be a good moment for you to remind us you know what was the economic model uh, in Second Life. I think it's very interesting you know everybody's scratching the back of their head where as you say, we're you know on the back of 15 years of targeted advertising and data collection you know so what was what was the economy um, like in Second Life?
1: Well, first, I guess, first, let me start with the easy answer, which is like something like GitHub or WordPress or something like that. Um, Second Life's business fundamentally, or a big piece of it, and then I'll get to the other piece, the biggest part of Second Life's income, its revenues, is from charging hosting fees, um, which are associated with land in the virtual world, which is associated with compute resources. So we basically rent cloud computers to people that are using them because they have a home there in Second Life. And it's literally on a plot of land. So we we charge the company charges about $20 an acre a month for land and the world of Second Life is about the size of Los Angeles. So the company makes a good deal of money may a great business, uh, you know, profitable, great business, basically, charging people a hosting fee, which is a lot like just an AWS fee basically for the land that they occupy in the virtual world. So that's the first thing is that you you can definitely build a virtual world and have it be a great business. We make more money per person than Facebook does, for example, across its businesses. We make more money per person per year than Google does in advertising. Um, so it, you don't need to do advertising. So that that's the first thing is, is hosting cloud resources. Um, the second part of Second Life's business, which is the one that's really fun to talk about, and you know, a source of interesting, you know, stories and anecdotes and whatnot, is that from the very beginning we anticipated that people would want to make stuff using the building blocks of the world. They'd want to craft things. You know, they'd want to make glasses or hair for their avatar, or a motorcycle or furniture for houses or whatever, right? And that we anticipated that a lot of people would want to sell the stuff they made to each other. So we built a bunch of things to make that work and it's worked and it's still today a $650 million a year economy in people selling, buying and selling things from each other. So what did we, what did we do to do that? And you know, what, what is there to be learned from that? Well, we basically had to build a cryptocurrency. Now this is 2003 and it was all the more important that we had to build a cryptocurrency because in 2003, there weren't things like Venmo, even if, even if all our, Participants had been in the United States, which they're absolutely not. They're all over the world, uniformly distributed. But back then, what we needed, therefore, was some way that somebody that made a piece of virtual furniture in Second Life could sell a copy of their chair or, or whatever to somebody else in the world. And then hopefully, eventually, there'd be a way for them to turn that back into dollars if they wanted to use that job, basically, of making stuff to pay their rent. So we had to solve that problem from scratch. There was nothing. There were no tools we could use. There was no cryptocurrency. There was no payment systems we could use. Somebody like Visa was, you know, not in a million years going to let us, you know, have people buying and selling things, you know, say with credit cards in the virtual world. So what we did was we built a currency, a digital currency. And I I usually say digital currency to distinct to separate the broader category of that from cryptocurrency, which is more specifically things like Ethereum, Bitcoin, proof of work, proof of stake, et cetera. So we built a currency that people could use to exchange with each other in the very beginning. And in the beginning, we gave everybody a thing which is now being debated a lot in real world politics. We gave everybody a basic income. So um, everybody got, you know, when you woke up in the morning, actually, I think it was weekly at the outset, you got a weekly income of Linden dollars, which is the name of the currency. And you could, therefore, you could kickstart, you know, the economy that way. So everybody suddenly had a ready supply of these Linden dollars in their wallet because new ones showed up every week and they could start spending those Linden dollars on buying stuff from each other and boom, you know, that took off. And so we had to do a lot of other stuff. So one of the things we had to do, which again is very much in the news today is we recognized early on because we talked to economists and, you know, smart, smart people that were giving us good advice about stuff. Uh, people like Bill Tai and Larry Lessig and uh, people like that that were, were, were very thoughtful people that were working on these things, we uh, recognized that if the price of our currency either wildly fluctuated or even worse yet, um, went up and up and up over time, nobody would use it for exchanging goods and services with each other because it would be better to hold that currency and watch it go up and get rich. So, we had this big problem, which was if you just, as we know today with Bitcoin and Ethereum, if you just start off with a limited number of tokens in your currency, its price, and, oh, and people are more people are coming to be interested in it tomorrow than yesterday, then you inevitably have this situation where the value of the currency goes up continuously and it stops, it doesn't work as a currency. And by the way, that's exactly what we see with Ethereum and Bitcoin. There's absolutely nobody out there buying absolutely anything. Nobody's buying anything with Bitcoin and Ethereum because they're sitting on it. It's it's a commodity or it's an investment, not a currency. So we had to do a bunch of stuff to make that work. One was we gave people this basic income. So as new people came in, we could actually give people more currency so that the price would stay stable. And then the second thing we did was we actually did a kind of a more complicated Fed desk sort of a thing where, and we still do this today, where we would sometimes... Uh, sell new currency, we would print new money basically, and then we would sell it on the open market. So we would kind of sell it to everybody, if you will, at the prevailing market price. And those, those two knobs, the basic income and the selling money on the open market are by adjusting those knobs, we were able to keep the, uh, the market price of the Linden dollar stable to within a couple percentage points against the US dollar and the Euro over the last 20 years. And so this monetary policy has been very successful.
2: So, you always allow people to take their Linden dollars into into U.S. dollars?
1: Yeah, we provide an exchange called the Lindex, where they can basically trade their their Linden dollars back to dollars. Um, so it's it's basically just like a currency exchange again. Today is such a great news day, right? FTX and Binance, right? Same thing. <laughs> we 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 run we built the code to enable the same kind of uh, currency exchange that you see in those exchanges. So you you place an order and the order can be partially filled and um it all just works. So we 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 built that type of a currency exchange and uh, well we actually yeah we I think we deployed it in two thousand and five if I remember correctly.
2: So you had a property tax, a VAT, yep. to put this in world, and, and that was it. And and, the, was and it. the exchange mechanism—that's that's amazingly powerful. Yep,
1: yep. So we, cho- yeah. And so the way the company—sorry—the way the, the the company makes a little bit of money on that GDP that that $650 million mm-hmm. GDP, the company makes a little bit of money because some of those transactions go through a marketplace where you pay to like put up a listing and then you pay a small fee. And by small, I mean, like single digit percentage, not not the 47% or whatever that Facebook talks about. Um, so w- we charge very small fees on some of the transactions when you take money out to dollars, we charge a, a couple of percentage points as well. But there's that we actually encourage, um, there can be multiple exchanges as well. We, from the very beginning, we believed that we just wanted our currency to be treated as a real currency.
2: So I think I, I heard you say uh, the Washington Post that you would you would consider taking second life to the mobile platform. Would that, would that economics work on the mobile platform?
1: I think the economics would I mean, work. But I,
2: because the 30%, you know, you're, you're going to have to. Oh. To cope with a 30% tax on
1: that platform. No. Right. So that's one of the reasons why you, yeah, good, good question. So restating it, because I think it's such an important thing to talk about. Um, Right. Um, A a virtual economy where there's a lot of internal trade cannot suffer a 30% tax on each transaction. And you're right. The mobile uh, providers, you know, Apple and Google have a stranglehold on the market and, One of the things that stranglehold does is it completely forbids the possibility of something like Second Life happening um, on a mobile device. So I I would also add, though, that mobile devices don't allow the kind of rich interaction between people yet, that are also required to make a metaverse take off on them. So it's like Yeah, it's challenging on both sides. But you make a good you bring up a very good point there. You can't have a circular economy, which is a word that people use for for a couple of different things. But the idea in Second Life of a circular economy is Philip makes uh shoes virtual f- for avatars mark does hair for avatars and patrick makes uh, motorcycles that he sells and the three of us have met each other in world as strangers you know but we've come to like each other and every couple of days we go by and buy something from each other just for fun to respect the other person's craft right and we do that circularly you know we 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 buy back and forth well if you charge 30 percent every time we make a purchase from each other we all, all, three of us run out of our original dollar within a couple of transactions. So that idea of circular economies, not being able to suffer really high fees is very important as something that we learned about Second Life. And so that, that, that completely puts the brakes on a Facebook metaverse or, um, a mobile metaverse.
2: So, and last question on the topic, you know, when you look, so I love the simplicity of the Second Life model. I, th- I think it's, uh. It's it's brilliant. So, but we're not seeing that in Roblox, Fortnite, or 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 Horizon World, you know. So, aside from the mobile, uh, you know, thirty percent fee problem, do you see? Do you see? Do you have a hypothesis as to why you know nobody's going for an open economic model like this. Well,
1: let's look at something like. Uh, we could look at something like Fortnite, where. The. For most people that play Fortnite, the experience is a relaxing experience where you are you know playing a role you're you're improving your skill in at a very at a very specific you know craft um, and you're not trying to earn a living or run around sharing content now of course, for example, in the case of fortnite, fortnite creative is this wonderland that's growing and growing of people making amazing things and sharing them with each other. But that's still early because it doesn't yet, for example, have a currency, right, for, for that where people could buy and sell from each other. So I think that one of the things that's happened is because this, this modern interest in metaverse has, I think, been most tied kind of both on the Web3 side and on the experiential side to games, some games are kind of more relax and consume experiences. You know, you're leaning back, you're consuming. It's the end of the day. You're trying to wind down things like second life and Roblox, by the way, I think, or at least probably parts of Roblox fall into this different category where you are seeking to engage. You know, you are, you are, you know, like in second life, you know, you're walking into a bar and you're going to chat with new people in the bar. Well, that's a very lean forward type of a thing where you're really engaging and there's a lot of social interaction involved with it. So I think part of what's happening is we're still early on all this stuff and the number of platforms and the opportunity for social interaction isn't robust enough yet to kind of drive all the other pieces that are needed to follow it, if that makes any sense.
0: Philip. interesting that you mentioned walking into the bar as an example. I'm going back to the early 2000s. My actually first interaction with Second Life is I was hanging out with my friend who did all my tattoos and he's kind of like jamming out at his computer and I'm like, hey, Nate, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm hosting a party and I'm DJing in a bar in Second Life. (laughs) How
1: fantastic. Yeah, and if you look down at the map from the sky of Second Life right now, and there is a kind of a satellite map you can use to decide where you want to go next, you know, you see these little clusters of green dots, which is where the people are on the map. And a lot of those little clusters of green dots are people DJing for each other and playing live music or playing guitar. There's a lot of communal fire, you know, kind of fire fireside uh, gatherings that make up the majority of where people are in, in Second Life. Yeah, that's a great anecdote.
2: And before I let Patrick geek out again, you know, one thing you said that, Earlier, as the people are equally distributed across the planet, and it looks like the population in Second Life is very diverse. Do you have an explanation right. as to why?
1: Well, first of all, because the whole gist of it was getting people to meet each other for the purpose of starting a business, dating, um, you know, finding friends around a topic or whatever. So, the 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 again, you know, as compared to games, which are different in that way, you know, importantly the, the, the requirement with second life was parties. And, you know, for example, are you going to go into a party that has an 80, 20 gender balance? No, you're not going to go into that party in the real world and you're not going to go into that party in the virtual world. So for example, one of the reasons that VR is failing right now, and by VR, I mean VR headsets is that VR headsets are not equally appealing to all genders and they're not equally there. They're not equally appealing across a range of perspective, uh, Uh, you know, segmentations of people. And unfortunately, that means that you end up with a very homogenous crowd of people that are using it. And that means that if you're trying to have, you know, a good party or, you know, an experience where you meet new people that are interesting to you, it's not gonna work. So I think it's kind of like, again, once we have metaverse experiences that are really centrally based on connecting you with new people, we're gonna all realize much more so you know, that they have to be inclusive and diverse. There's just no way to do it without that. And, and I should say Second Life was, at the outset, something that you accessed, not via browser, I mean, it had a download and you know, there was a bit of a, especially earlier on, there was more of a dependency on graphics cards, but you know, Second Life from the very beginning has been very diverse in terms of people using it because it was, you know it used the standard access tool that especially at that time in the early 2000s we used, which was a computer or a laptop computer.
0: Yeah, Philip, and, and mentioning the web there, I mean, do you think you could build Second Life today, uh,
1: focus on a web browser? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I wonder, I wonder, I, I, I think you could. I mean, I think at a high level, right, the capabilities of web browsers and browser graphics today are really good. I mean, there are some people in Second Life, I think if we said this, who would say, oh my God, no, the high quality rendering is critical and, you know, uh, Second Life needs to look more like the Unreal Engine and and, and that's fair. There's a lot of really we can beautiful can talk about art. that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful, beautiful scenery and art and and artistry and avatars in Second Life. But, you know, I think if I was starting it all over, again, because of that target of diversity and inclusion, um, I'd just look at the browser. I mean, I think we're pretty close. I mean, if you started a new project today, I mean, don't you agree? Like, if you said we're going to launch in two years, right? I mean, you, you could probably depend on the browsers for that.
2: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and if you need If you need to deliver an high quality experience, you can always switch to a hybrid mode and pixel stream off the game engine. So I think it's not a, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, on that note, I mean, in terms of geeking out, I've been doing some work lately, uh, spending some time with the folks at uh, Improbable and Mm -hmm. some of their events that they've done have been pretty moving to attend. You know, they do a pixel streaming. And they, they did this event recently kind of as a test, but it was a real event. It was for, for, uh, other side, which is the board, ape yacht club land thing. But, uh, they got 5,000 people in one. I mean, literally in, in shoulder to shoulder at sometimes, you know, like we were all mm-hmm. crunching right up into each other, you know, like chasing around the announcer and, uh, 5,000 people and, uh, with, with, with voice, uh, on and, uh, you know, that's a. That's a pretty amazing experience. And I think that, by the way, I just love that you mentioned, you know, pixel streaming. I, I think v- the challenge of getting beyond 100 people in the same space, that's another total blocker for metaverse stuff to take off. We, we can't have a metaverse with 100 people. It's not going to happen.
2: Definitely. The network layer is the bottleneck in the game engines right now. And we, we had, you know, on this podcast, Lincoln Wall and the City of Improvable. Talk to mm-hmm. that, uh, you know. Hadian is another company that tries to solve the problem. Yep. There's a number of things, and and the browser yep. seems to be like a better platform for high CCU's uh, interaction at this point. That's why you know, maybe hybrid solutions would be best. You know, you you could switch modes pretty pretty easily. So,
1: yeah. And I mean, I just think want we're to start getting...
2: something, uh, Philip.
1: I mean, we're. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, I am. I, it is funny because I'm in my own. Uh, I, I am kind of spending. I'm, I'm not kind of. I am spending. I have spent this year uh, thinking deeply about what uh, what I want to do next. And you're right. It's a, it's just a fascinating moment. And I, I think that yeah, um, somebody's going to crack. I, I think there's going to be a couple of breakthroughs in virtual worlds that are going to be really interesting. I think the near the near term ones are not going to involve VR devices. Uh, you know, I'll just say that I don't think they're I think they're getting way better it's been super fun to work on them i started my company uh with my two co-founders high fidelity to basically try to build a software open source software layer that presumed the vr devices were going to work so um i've been banging my head on that problem for a decade and i and i think that they are getting better but we're nowhere near what we need yet in terms of a vr device but that said i think that if somebody can crack uh nonverbal cueing amongst avatars, topic one and then topic two, getting more than 100 people in a room, doing it say by web, web, web rendering or by pixel streaming, and then figuring out the interactivity which I can speak to more about how I think that's going to happen but um, or sorry the uh, expressiveness of the avatars. I think once we get there, you're suddenly going to see some real interesting things going on that we haven't seen yet. you know like why, why don't we have a, why can't we have a political rally in a virtual environment, for example? that's rowdy you know that's that's a big a big public debate about an important topic right why can't we do that we should be able to do that
2: is there anything in the world of web 3 that you feel can be a game changer
1: not yet not in two words um the reason i said that i mean i touched earlier on first of all decentralizing everything is is just as bad as centralizing everything so if you You go to extreme decentralization versus extreme you know walled garden or whatever people like to say those are both total fails in terms of you know social appeal so that's one thing and then you know as i can delve into more technically the infrastructure for uh blockchains today um is just simply not ready yet um i've worked on it we built a blockchain based um, nft and currency store for high fidelity around about 2016 to 2018. um So I've been working on it super hard, but the speed and capacity and, uh, you know, operational stability of the blockchains is, as we all know, simply not there yet. I mean, you, you, you couldn't put second life itself has more transactions per second than, you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin combined. Um, So the technology is not there yet. And then there's just all these really interesting and philosophically interesting issues around the design of decentralized systems and getting it right. And we absolutely have not gotten it right yet um, in such a way that we can create good environments for people.
2: So what about identity and and ownership? There was a lot of promises right there.
1: Yeah, I I wrote something on Twitter the other day that I I thought was, you know, Well, of course I wrote it, so I'm biased, but I thought it was a good (laughs) point, which was I I said that ownership is no more something that you can store on the blockchain than friendship. (laughs) Ownership is a human social contract, right? The universe has no concept of ownership built into it. Like you can, if if I give you my iPhone you can look at the atoms all the way down to the individual molecules and particles. You will not see Philip Rosedale on there anywhere. It's not on there. If you look at the if you look at my iPhone, <laughs> stay on the iPhone idea, right? If you look at the right data in my iPhone, it'll say belongs to Philip Rosedale. But hey, wait a second. What does that mean? Does it really belong to me? If you take it from me and don't give it back, does do you? does it need to come back to me, right? All of the rules around that are socially... That they're, they're community rules. They're rules that human beings have in, agreed mean something. And so I'm always chuckling about this idea that the blockchain is a revolution in ownership because it doesn't encode ownership. It's a suggested strategy where we might be able to store things. But of course, as we know today, the current form of the blockchain, the rule, the, the social contract, if you will, for ownership is this. Let me tell you what it is. The first person who posts something owns it. I wouldn't live in that country. Would you? I don't want to live in a country where I can take all the photographs Mark took on his vacations, upload them to the blockchain, claim their mine, sell them, and then laugh at Mark online <laughs> in Reddit or whatever. I mean, I don't want to live in that world. So the blockchain as it stands with regard to ownership is a suggestion that the way ownership should work is the first person who posts something owns it. That's a, that's a bad suggestion. I mean, it's, it's technically feasible, but it's uninteresting to humans. So- I think that sometimes technology suggests a better way of doing things. But what we've seen with blockchain so far is that it it doesn't, unless you're blurring your eyes a lot and looking at things. And again, again, I don't wanna diss it in that sense. Like saying there's gotta be a better way to do money. That's something I've been thinking about a lot over the years because of Second Life. And there is a better way to do money, but it's not the Ethereum token. But I think there is, there are better ways to use technology to build currencies, for example. So I think we're part way there. And it's, I get, it's amazing, isn't it, that it's been 10 years. We've been 10 years with, uh, 10 years since Bitcoin.
2: Already, wow.
1: I just can't believe that myself. I know it because I wrote a, I wrote a paper, I've put this up. I think you can find it on my, uh, geez, WordPress or Medium or something, but I think it's a medium. I, I wrote a paper called uh, Single Global Currency. In 2009 uh you know at the same time that bitcoin came out and so when bitcoin came out i was like oh this is totally fascinating you know this is i basically just wrote a very hand wavy uh kind of a project plan that i presented to my board at second life and i said hey you know we could not store the database for the money we could instead come up with a way to let Hundreds or thousands of different people store the database and kind of wash our hands of this whole thing because we were realizing how, what a uh, complicated thing it was to manage a currency.
0: So, Philip, we appreciate you sharing you know, all your insights from the incredible depth of experience you have. Uh, I really loved all the human aspects of the metaverse that you shared and certainly the lessons on the uh, currency and economic models. was uh, Quite a lesson for myself. Um, to wrap things up, we'd love to ask if you'd like to give a shout out to any person or organization. One
1: that's just a public kind of service message for those of us that are, that are looking at um, uh, identity and groups and behavior and governance. Um, I always talk about people that I wish I'd read, things I wish I'd read when I started Second Life. And one of them is the work of Eleanor Ostrom. And I think there's a group called the Ostrom Foundation or something like that, where you can find out more about the work there. But the general idea there is that there doesn't have to be a tragedy of the commons if you support the right kind of human connections and rules around how things are governed. It's a very salient topic right now because we're talking about, you know, wanting Twitter to be our town hall, right? And the Ostrom, uh, Eleanor Ostrom uh, won the Nobel Prize for exploring the idea that we've all heard as the tragedy of the commons. And what she found was they don't happen (laughs) tragedy. of The commons is an idea that under normal human circumstances doesn't ever happen. And she got the Nobel prize for explaining why that was. And so that's something that I'd call out as like something that all of us should be experts in right now that are working on internet systems. Um, I mean, you know, another one would be my, my now, uh, my, my co-founder and my, my, my friends that are still working on high fidelity, uh, spatial audio, this ability to hear three or four people talking at the same time without becoming incredibly frustrated <laughs> is another thing that we've been doing great work in at high fidelity. And that is going to, as Bluetooth gets better, et cetera, et cetera, is going to be a real, uh, uh, one of the necessary, but not sufficient components that I think can help facilitate good behavior.
2: Fantastic. Well. Philip Rosdale, you're a true pioneer and a deep thinker. It made me think we should have version of this podcast with multiple hours. I mean, it feels like we've schemed and uh, you know on so many topics. It was fantastic. Thank you very much for being with us today. Um, and uh, Patrick, thank you very much as well, uh, as usual to be uh, to be with us. And uh, thanks to our audience. You know, we hear a lot of good feedback. So please hit us on social. Let us know what you think. Let us us know who you want to hear from. And we will be there. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you, Philip. It was amazing. Thanks, everybody.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.